Welcome to the Texas Triple Play Podcast. I am your host, Ben Staten. We have a full slate of news for you, uh, including the latest breaking news about the Astros managerial search. We have a brand new Ranger that has joined the club and will help shore up uh, one of the key positions for them as we move into the spring and the full minor league proposal put forth by Major League Baseball that could reshape the landscape of not only major and minor leagues, but the entire sport of baseball for years to come. We're excited to bring all of that to you in just a moment. I did want to take a second to thank everyone that did come out to the Fan Fest out in Frisco, Texas uh, last weekend. We did have a blast. I was able to hang out with some fans of the show and uh, we're able to see Elvis Andrews, we're able to see Billy Calhoun, uh, along with some other Rangers players and obviously uh, hundreds of hundreds of fans. Uh, great facilities out there in Frisco, the Dr. Pepper Ballpark. If you don't or have never been out there, uh, it might be the time to catch a, catch a game this spring as we move into minor and major league baseball season. At this point, we're going to go ahead and get rolling with our first piece of Ranger news. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start out with the Rangers tonight. Um, first thing I wanted to touch on, a minor trade was done since we last left y'all. Jeffrey Spring for Sam Travis. Uh, Jeffrey Spring is a pitcher who the Rangers have twice now designated for assignment uh, this offseason. They designated him for assignment the early part of December, ended up signing him back as a free agent, and then um, was initially designated for assignment by the Rangers, but was able to work out a trade with the Red Sox for uh, a player by the name of Sam Travis. Now, who is Sam Travis? Well, He's more of a depth piece than he is uh, anybody. Um, he was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds in the 40th round. So the fact he's been able to even work his way um, into, uh, you know, to the major league level is a story um, of itself. Um, he played 59 games last year for the Boston Red Sox. Like I said, was was really a depth piece. Hit 215 with six home runs, 16 RBIs. Uh, had a OPS of 656. Um, for the majority of his career, has played first base, a little bit of just pitch pitch hitting and, and a little bit of left field. This is really more of a depth piece than it is anything. Um, you know, he's a guy once upon a time many people thought could be something uh, as he continued to rise through the Red Sox organization. Um, but like I said, more than anything, I think this is – uh, this gives the Rangers the ability to add some depth um, to a position at first base, base that really right now just has Ronald Guzman holding it down. So um, he did get a non-roster invite to camp. Um, I think that you know they'll they would love to see something from him, but um, you know we'll, we'll see kind of what works out there. Jeffrey Spring, high four ERA, a guy that a lot of uh, fans around here liked. I have a lot of, uh, I actually have a, a really uh, close buddy of mine that really, really likes him. Thought that he got kind of the short end of the stick last year, but could just never put it together. You could tell sometimes uh, when he was up last year that he just looked a little lost, had some issues with control. Um, they just could never uh, really get him to nail anything down. And obviously the Rangers decide to move on from him. So like I said, more than anything, this is a depth piece. The big news for the Rangers Todd Frazier, the Todd father coming to the Texas Rangers. This is a long rumored 
acquisition that the Rangers, uh, you know, were connected to him, a large part of the offseason. He brings obviously a huge bat, but that uh, veteran presence on this team that really needs it is young in a lot of areas. I really, really like this pickup. I especially really like it for what uh, the the deal was, which I believe was two years, right at $5 million a, a, a year. That's a steal for what he is and what he can bring to this ball club. To give you an idea of what the Rangers went through last year at third base, I'm going to read you off some names here that played third third base last year for the Rangers and kind of where they are now. So as Drew Cabrera, obviously we know signed with the Rangers, uh, ended up being designated for assignment midway part through the year, ended up being picked up by the Nationals. With his time with the Rangers last year, he hit 235 with 12 home runs, 76 hits, and uh 51 RBIs with the Nationals 323. Just tore the cover off the baseball. Um, looked like a much different player with the Nationals as well. Uh, he ended up playing 93 games at third base for the Texas Rangers last year. Um, next up is Logan Forsythe, who actually is a free agent now, is not with the club. Um, last year with the Rangers batted 227, had, uh, 72 hits on the year with seven home runs and 39 RBIs. And honestly had a pretty good year defensively above average for a third baseman defensive numbers, but obviously didn't get a lot of, of a play at third base. He did kind of double that up with playing a little bit of second base, obviously a lot of first base last year for Logan Forsythe. Um, you run down the list here, Isaiah Kainafalefa, a guy that split time between uh, third base and catcher. Um, last year on the year, his first uh, kind of year doubling up between catcher and third base, he ends up hitting 238 uh, with 48 hits, uh, just one home run and 21 RBI. So, um, Isaiah Kainer-Falefa is a guy that will be a utility as we kind of work through the uh, the the positions this year um, that the, the Rangers will have. But obviously, as Joel Cabrera is gone, Logan Forsythe gone, Danny Santana is another guy that played a little bit, a little bit of third base last year. Um, he ended up playing just third place in just nine games uh, and um, was really uh, a guy that, they, they want to make their starting center fielder this season. And then Nick Solak, a guy that also played um, third base, many people project him to be a second baseman and actually could push Ruggi Odor if he ends up having a similar season that he did last year. Obviously, Ruggi's got the contract. It makes it a little bit tougher to you know move on from Ruggi uh, or you know move past him in any way. Um, but that's something that, you know, you'll, we'll definitely want to keep an eye on, but I don't think that Logan, um, I'm sorry, Nick Solak is going to work too much into the third base equation. So inner Todd Frazier, Todd Frazier with the Mets last year, all he did was bat 251 with 21 home runs and ended up uh, bringing in 67 RBIs, um, walked 40 times, ended up having 112 hits 
on the season and played in 133 games. A really good season last year from Todd Frazier. The season before with the Mets, similar season. He ended up batting uh, right at, well, a little bit less, 213, um, and but put up similar numbers, 18 home runs, and uh, ended up having 59 RBIs um, with uh, – ended up walking a little bit uh, more, actually, 48 times. You look at the 2017 season that he split between the White Sox and the Yankees. Uh, total for that season – uh, he put up right there 27 home runs. Um, you look at the RBI number, 76 RBIs, a tick above that. 213 batting average, though, so still a little bit lower. Hit for more consistency last year, which is something you like to see from Todd. You know, he hit those 21 home runs, but also 251 batting average, which was his highest since the 2015 season when he was with Cincinnati. Um, all in all, I love this pickup. I think this is. Uh, the perfect position to bring in for the, I believe it's a one-year deal with a second-year option. And this gives you the ability from from the Rangers' perspective to have flexibility long-term with some of the prospects that you have coming up through the, through the, the farm system. Guys like Josh Jung, who might be the future of your third-base position. Um, and, and Todd Frazier coming in, he's going to add stability for a team that's going to push for the playoffs. This is a perfect type of acquisition at what I believed was a great price. And he could honestly come out and hit 25 home runs, 20 to 25 home runs, bat between 235 to 250, uh, knock in you know anywhere between 60 to 80 ribbies, and uh, be above that 100 hit number. He's not a liability on defense. Uh, he can also you know play that D, that DH role. And honestly, I mean, he's just, he's an all around good player. He's been in a couple of poor situations in Cincinnati. And, um, you know, obviously he played for the Yankees in 2017. Um, and then the Mets, obviously, who had just been, at least last year was a dumpster fire, but he ended up having one of his better seasons as a pro, um, at least for a couple of years last year with them. So I, I like the, this, the situation he's being put in. I like the amount of time that he's going to be able to have at third base. He can also play a little bit of third, uh, excuse me, first base, which is nice. So really a corner infielder, but is mainly a third baseman. Huge, huge plus for me. Um, huge, huge A grade uh, on this. And like I said, especially when you look at what you had last year at third base, I think this is a win-win for all the parties involved. Todd, the Rangers. Uh, and their their prospects for going to the playoffs and pushing for this division. Now, what else has happened? I know the last time we left y'all, you know, we talked about them maybe adding another bat to the outfield. A guy like Nick Castellanos, maybe trading for a guy like Sterling Marte. Well, neither of those things came to be. Um, Nick Castellanos actually agreed today for a five-year deal, four years, and then a, a fifth-year option with the Reds. He was an option for the Rangers, actually had met with the Rangers. If my guess there, my guess being that they probably wanted, didn't want to be tied up long-term and he was probably looking for something that was on the, the four to five year deal. The other news, uh, Pirates and, and the uh, Diamondbacks work out a trade when we had um, seen reports from um, uh, the Rangers that they were looking to add a bat a veteran bat, but more in the way via a trade. So Sterling Marte, Marte was a guy that was on the, you know, on the docket, a guy that possibly could be here. 
And I, I don't know, you know, I saw reports that they had asked the Mets for their t- two of their top five prospects. They ended up getting a top seven, um, excuse me, seven overall and nine overall uh, from uh, the Pirates in the deal. Two, two young, young players, a, um, a shortstop and a, I believe a, an outfielder, both of which are, you know, high, high upside guys and guys that the, uh, the, the pirates will like the return they got there from, from the diamondbacks. Um, and so, you know, obviously didn't make the move there. If I'm projecting moving forward and looking at, you know, what moves they could make, I know everybody wants the Nolan Arenado trade. You know, I know that that's the buzz trade. That's the the big deal. And I do think, I do think Nolan Arenado gets moved. You know, since we we last recorded, that relationship with the Rockies has kind of fell apart. The Rockies have come out now and said, "Hey, we don't want to move you. We're going to keep you as we move into the season." Nolan Nolan Arenado has come out and said, Hey, I'm, that's frustrating to me. I don't want to be here. That relationship is dissolving by the minute. I do expect him to be moved sooner rather than later. Um, I don't know if the Rangers, and I've said this before in this podcast, I don't know if the Rangers have the capital to pull off a Nolan Arenado trade. If I'm a betting man, I think he goes to an organization like the Cardinals who have a little bit higher graded prospects than the Rangers do. Would I love to see Nolan Arenado in a Texas Rangers uniform? Absolutely. I don't think the Todd Fraser deal kills a possible Nolan Arenado trade, but I do think it makes it a little bit tougher. And I do think that your asking price for Nolan Arenado is a little higher than what the Rangers want to pay. And whereas I've seen reports on a Nolan Arenado Arenado trade being about 50-50, I think the chances of the Rangers acquiring Nolan Arenado is more around the 15%, 10 to 15% range, if I was going to throw out a number. Just for all the, like I said, everything involved and kind of the direction that the Rockies are wanting to go, the direction Nolan Arenado wants to go for as far as a team he wants to play for, the capital that the Rangers have, I just don't see it happening as much as I would love to see it happening. So a um, couple of, of good moves by the Rangers. Like I said, this puts a, another cap on what has been a really nice offseason. We'll have a full breakdown position by position as we get closer to camp. Uh, 40-man projections, uh, how I believe this roster will shake out non um, you know, roster invites, um, uh, and guys that, that might surprise us. Uh, we'll have the full breakdown here. Um, but, uh, like I said, great, great signing of Todd Frazier. I'm excited to see where the Rangers go from here. So the crazy thing about the world of baseball is at any given moment, uh, things can change, um, be altered, things can uh, be agreed upon or or shifted around. And um, I wouldn't know it. I spent uh, roughly about 30 to 45 minutes yesterday working on editing, finishing up an entire section for the Astros about the nine managerial candidates that they had interviewed up to that point with a full breakdown of each one. 
and ranked them nine to one on who I believe was the uh, least and the most qualified and who I'd want to see uh, being on the uh, the sideline next season um, in the dugout. But uh, this uh, this afternoon, um, as of uh, January the 28th at roughly about 10 o'clock, uh, it was uh, confirmed that the Astros are zeroing in on Dusty Baker as their next uh, manager. And um, obviously, if anything changes, we will we'll have an update here. But all reports are indicating that this is expected to be done, that they're working out some details on uh, how this is going to work, and that um, he, he is the Astros' top choice. Dusty Baker obviously being the uh, ex-manager for the Washington Nationals in the 2016 and 2017 season. But I will get into that here in just a second. I probably won't spend so much time talking about the other candidates. Um, guys like Brad Osmus, who I didn't think was going to be a good selection. Uh, a guy like Will Venables, who I would have loved, but um, he decided open and publicly that he was going to stay with the Cubs. Uh, I really liked um, a guy like Eduardo Perez, who had a lot of potential, but would have been a very risky hire, especially at this point in the Astros organization and, and where they're at. Um, a guy like John Gibbons, I didn't have too much uh, faith in considering what he had done with the Blue Jays and uh, Buck Walter, a great manager um, throughout uh, multiple organizations, but not a guy that is going to embrace any type of analytical standpoint. And so um, I'm going to take this this time a little bit to kind of talk uh, a little bit about Dusty and uh, what I think he would bring to the Astros if this does become official. And um, so let's let's go ahead and get into that. Dusty does bring a winning pedigree uh, to the Astros. So since 2010, um, his third season with the Cincinnati Reds, he has won 90 games five times. So his win total for uh, the 2010, 11, 12, 13, 16, and 17 seasons are 91 wins, 79 wins, 97, 90, 95, 97. So I think most Astro fans, if you would say, hey, you know what, I can get you a manager in here that can win you close to 95 to 100 games, they would sign up for that. Now, the Washington Nationals had higher expectations for the teams that he managed. They had a lot of success in the regular season, but ultimately could not get out of the playoffs. A lot of that has to do with their opponents. Um, obviously, the Dodgers are in that that same uh, NL um, you know, uh, league. And, and that's something that they had to go through every year. And, um, for many of those years, the 2006, 16 and 2017 season, uh, he had guys like Bryce Harper. He had guys like Hector Rendon. Uh, he had guys like Ryan Zimmerman, um, and Steven Strasburg. And, uh, you know, and these were these types of players, when you have these types of players, you're expected to go and, and, and go deep, uh, into the playoff picture. And, that never happened. Uh, he was never able to win a pennant. Matter of fact, his only pennant uh, since he came into the league was in 2002 with the San Francisco Giants, which famously the, the Giants uh, during that time, that's right in the heart of Barry Bonds's home run race. Um, so some interesting kind of history there. I think he has a lot of experience managing higher profile players, which is why I do think he might be a great fit. Uh, for what the Astros have going on here. Some other interesting things from a fit perspective that make him an interesting hire, if, if this does become official, he is the manager with the highest winning percentage out of everyone that the Astros interviewed to date. There was nine reported interests or interviews that they had. 
He has the highest winning percentage of all of those. Um, he's a guy that's a, just a, a stabilizer, can come in and uh, absolutely be respected by not only the media, but Major League Baseball as a whole. And um, has the, the ability to kind of keep everything smooth, calm, collected. He's 137 wins away from 2000, which is a benchmark that only 11 other people have ever reached, um, but has never won a World Series title. And uh, so it, it's it's interesting to see if maybe, you know, if the Astros talent and, and him managing, if he's learned some things, can help take them kind of over the top. Um, some other things, being at 70 years old, Dusty Baker is the oldest of all the candidates that the Astros have interviewed. Um, and, uh, but there are reports that he wanted to get back in baseball. There are reports that he was excited to manage again, excited to, uh, to get his feet wet and to, um, you know, really jump back into things. He, from an analytical perspective, when he was with the nationals in 2016 and 2017, they weren't exactly what you would call forward thinking. <laughs> there was a lot of old school play a lot of old school managerial decisions. Um, I'm not going to say it's the opposite of what Astros fans should be used to, but it's different. It's different for sure. And that's not to say that he can't embrace analytics. That's not to say that he can't change the way that he does things. It seems like if this is the direction that the Astros were to go in, um, that much of the coaching staff is going to stay in place. And many of them do have that analytical thinking uh, kind of mindset, um, many of which that's the reason why they were hired. So I'm not to say, not to say the analytics is going to go away completely. I'm, I actually don't think analytics is gone. You know, I don't think it's going to be anywhere close to being gone from baseball period. I think every club at some point, um, if they aren't already are going to be embracing analytics, um, in the coming seasons, this season, next season, the season after. And I think if you don't, you're just kind of disadvantaging yourself. So I think that analytics will be leveraged but I don't think it's going to be to the tune that Astros fans are used to. Let's remember, obviously this had a lot to do with the GM, but AJ Hinch had to execute this. Jeff Lunau was the most forward thinking GM in baseball. He was the guy that hired NASA engineers to come in and build him a system to find players that were undervalued um, or put players in position to maximize their value. He was able to acquire pitchers and have them work with uh, Brett Strom, the pitching coach, and they were able to do amazing things because of of uh, reports that that these front office executives were able to identify and put out. Um, I don't know if we're going to see that. You know, I don't know if we're going to see the nerd cave or the nerd herd. I don't know if it's going to be that style. I'm not saying that analytics is going to be gone from the Astros completely. Like I said, I think they'll embrace it in some form or fashion, but I don't think it's going to be what we're used to. Another thing that is interesting with this uh, reported news that Dusty Baker is being zeroed in on as the Astros manager, there are reports of two GM interviews that the Astros have done. One is Bobby Evans. Bobby Evans was the GM for the Giants um, in uh, recent years from 2015 to 2018. He actually was in San Francisco the same time Dusty Baker was there. And they enjoyed a lot of success together. He was uh, in an existent GM position. So, um, 
you know, he, he wasn't calling all the shots and in his time, um, Bobby Evans's time that he was the full GM, he had three losing seasons and was fired in 2018 after a 24 year run with the San Francisco organization. This could be an interesting pairing. Um, Bobby Evans is again, much more of an old school guy. One other report that has recently come out um, that is interesting is the Astros are interviewing a gentleman by the name of Peter Woodfork. Now, who is Peter Woodfork? He's the senior vice president of baseball operations for Major League Baseball. Per their website, his job description includes oversight of umpiring and instant replay, among other baseball operation functions. He is an Ivy League guy. He went to Harvard, graduated in 99, is much more of the forward-thinking style of of, uh, executive, was an assistant general manager for the Diamondbacks, um, and also served as a vice president in 2010. While he was there, he oversaw uh, 40-man roster management, contract negotiation, scouting, minor league development, those types of things. Um, Before that, he was with the Boston Red Sox, where he served for three seasons from 2003 to 2005 as the director of baseball operations and assistant director of player development. The interesting thing about this is from an analytic perspective, he does bring some of that background. He does bring some of that um, that knowledge in that area, that more forward-thinking slant that you would see, not to the uh, degree that a Jeff Luno has, but he does have that. So it might be interesting to pair a guy like Dusty Baker with a newer style GM, maybe possibly even a guy in Peter Woodfork who has never been a full-time GM before, um, but could bring some new breath into this organization uh, and is obviously respected by Major League Baseball considering that he most recently is working for them. So interesting move there, interesting uh, you know, candidates to consider. Like I said, Bobby Evans, much more of an old school guy. Not to say he, he can't be more forward thinking, but I think if that, that hire was made, it's going to be more uh, of a kind of a um, what you would consider more of a, a uh, cut and dry general manager, um, what we're used to traditional style. So as of right now, uh, this is about midday on Tuesday, January the 28th. There is no official word yet, but all signs do port, point to Dusty Baker being the next GM of the Astros. Astros fans, how would you how would you feel about that? How do you feel about a 70-year-old GM coming in who's had recent success with uh, a team that you just lost to in the World Series, um, has had a lot of uh, success managing high-profile players, and uh, but has never been able to get over the hump in the sense that he hasn't been able to win a pennant and he hasn't been able to win uh, a World Series? Um, it's an interesting hire. It might be a hire that that remains for two or three years. It might be a hire that remains for five years. Um, it may not be a hire at all. We don't know yet for sure. It's not confirmed. But I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on it. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the direction that uh, the Astros might go in the future and, and what you think this could mean, uh, both from a GM and manager position, for the future of the franchise.
So tonight in our minor league spotlight, we have something very special. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I teased this, but last October, Major League Baseball came forth with a proposal for all of its minor league teams that would greatly reshape the um, the geographical locations, uh, climates, economies, and players at these different minor league locations. And the proposal gets into a lot of different things um, and goes a lot of different directions, but there are a couple core things that it hits on that I'm going to touch on here that I think uh, need to be known, they need to be put out there, and they frankly need to be addressed by minor league baseball. And um, as of this recording, there have been no further development on this story, and it seems like minor league and major league are kind of going back and forth. Um, so I'm interested to see where this goes, but let's go ahead and get into the actual proposal here. The first big thing that it does is it eliminates 42 minor league baseball teams from being affiliated with, uh, major, the major leagues from MLB. Um, it also decreases the draft from 40 rounds to 25 to possibly even 20. It changes the length of how long a team has an agreement with the minor league club. So, for example, uh, the Astros just recently uh, came into agreement with uh, the Round Rock Express um, about making them their minor league affiliate. Uh, previously, before, the minor league affiliate for the Astros um, was located in California. And when uh, Round Rock came up for you know, uh, for where uh, their contract to be expired, instead of the, the Rangers continuing, the Astros stepped in and signed them as their, uh, their AAA club. And by doing so, obviously makes them closer geographically to Houston. Um, now these are done under the professional baseball agreement uh, that basically it codifies the, the working agreement between major league baseball and minor league teams. And those generally last between two to three years, but this particular agreement is set to expire in the 2020 season. Now, one reason why many minor league teams change uh, affiliation so often is because of these type of agreements. So to kind of give you a picture of the way this works, um, we'll just take the, the Dodgers. Uh, the Oklahoma City, what used to be the Red Hawks, um, were affiliated with the San Diego Padres previously. The uh, Oklahoma City came in, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Dodgers came in and said, hey, we think that Oklahoma City has better facilities than our currently minor league club. So we are going to, um, you know, basically come into contract with y'all at time at the time of uh, this this contract ending, so that you can be our double A affiliate or you know possibly triple A affiliate or whatever it may be. This works sometimes for clubs from a geographical perspective. It works sometimes for clubs if they're wanting to increase their facilities and they just sign an agreement with uh, a minor league um, organization. But what ends up happening every single time is that there are these clubs that have lesser facilities or they're located in odd geographical areas um, and they're they're kind of left as the last kids on the playground. Um, there are teams that um, you know end up having to come into co to contract with them because they're kind of left holding a bag and they have to have a double A or triple A or single A or high A um, or rookie or fall ball affiliate 
and they end up not having one, so they have to come in an agreement with one of these clubs. Um, this model makes it difficult for the major league club to truly want to invest in their minor league affiliate because in two to three years, that agreement could be over. And then it also makes it hard for the minor league club to continue to invest in the club itself because funding for the minor leagues is so limited. Now there was uh, a, used to be in the the nineties, a tax on major league tickets um, that fed into the minor leagues. Now there's just a percentage uh, of the major league club that is affiliated that goes to the minor leagues along with obviously the minor league revenue. But the model makes it very hard um, for this type of, of uh, for sustainability for minor league baseball. Um, so the, the major leagues came up with this idea. They basically said, hey, we are going to uh, put out a proposal that we cut 42 teams. What we will do is those 42 teams will either need to increase their facilities, uh, make them more attractive to a major league club, or uh, they will become essentially an independent baseball team. And the, the sad thing is, is many of these clubs are class A, some of them double A. There are a triple A affiliates on here. Um, but the sad thing is, is there are many economies that these teams are in that cannot, you know, they have trouble supporting even a minor league club. And if you were to make these teams independent, separate from uh, Major League Baseball, then you're basically setting them out to pasture. Um, they're, they're not going to last very long. And the, the additional thing, the way that the, uh, the Major Leagues have tried to kind of combat this is say, hey, we're going to make something called uh, a Dream League. And basically the way this works is those those players that were no longer going to be drafted because remember the draft is going to be uh, per this proposal is going to be reduced from say 40 to instead 20 or 25 rounds those players that would no longer be drafted they're going to be able to enter into this dream league uh, and sign a, a very low deal just like they would on a minor league club but at a lower rate and they would have the ability to try out for scouts year-round um and uh, this would give the ability to make a, a, a minor elite club affiliated with major leagues. Um, but it makes it a lot tougher. And it makes it a lot tougher on these independent clubs because this dream league would span all the way from, um, you know, some of the proposals are, are ridiculous, all the way from, say, Vermont to uh, Utah or Montana to Florida. And the travel, even now, is, is difficult on some minor league teams, but the travel to span this across thousands upon thousands of miles makes it even tougher. So you have this impasse where minor leagues are underfunded, major leagues are wanting to get larger investment uh, from their minor league clubs, um, and wanting to increase the amount of time that they can, they can be in contract with those, those minor league teams. Um, but then you have the players. Minor league players aren't paid much. Um, on average, it's anywhere between eleven to uh, seventeen hundred for many low A or double A players. Um, 
And that's just the time that they're working. There was a an, an act put forth by Congress in 2018 um, that uh, basically made it to where it was illegal for them to make less than what you would expect for minimum wage for a 40-hour work week. Um, but this still leaves many players uh, with no income or very little income for a large portion of the year when they're not doing baseball. And let's make it clear too, they don't get paid um, for things like instructional leagues. They don't get paid for things like spring training. They don't get paid for anything that happens outside of when they're working during the regular season playing in these games. So on average, the average salary for a baseball player um, is for for a year is roughly between sixty eight hundred and seventy two hundred dollars. So six thousand eight hundred or seven thousand two hundred roughly dollars for a year, and that makes it really really hard. Uh, if you're not on a forty man roster for a major league club, and if you're in one of these minor league affiliates, uh, which some clubs the the Yankees I believe have like six or seven minor league teams. If you are on one of these minor league clubs, financial burdens can be very challenging. I've heard stories um, from multiple minor league players of them obviously having to pick up second and third jobs, even while uh, you know they're playing. Sometimes you know in between um, lessons or in between giving out uh, in instructional camps and things like that that they they try to get people to pay for. The other part of this is. Um, there's the draft element of it. The draft per this proposal would be moved uh, from the summer right now, from July to all the way up to August. Now, at first glance, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you think about it, college players currently, per the system, college players have to agree for at least two years to be in college if they decide to go uh and to be on scholarship with a, a college baseball team. So we'll just say I'm a college prospect. I'm in high school. I'm deciding between, um, you know, going to the major leagues or going to play college at, at a, a university. Moving the draft till August does give scouts an additional amount of time to watch many players in the summertime, watch players in the College World Series, which was something that has been a contention point for Major League Baseball, people getting drafted while they're at the College World Series. So it does give them a larger amount of time to um, reflect and review those players. But also, if a player is drafted, which per this proposal, I believe the, the draft will be moved to the second week of August, so somewhere August 10th to the 15th, a player would then have just, in some cases, a week or maybe two weeks to decide if he wants to play pro or if he wants to go to a, go and, and sign with his college team, uh, you know, uh, uh, fulfill his college agreement that he's made per a scholarship from a coach. And this puts a lot of pressure on scouts as well and the organization that's actually um, potentially trying to draft these players. Unlike the MLB, unlike the NBA, you don't get to, to see a lot of um, about a player before you actually draft him. Um, I think about uh, you know a couple of years ago, um, the Astros 
drafted a pitcher um, and uh, by the name of Brady Aiken, who ended up, he was drafted by the Astros. The Astros, he was a, a first-round draft pick, um, high, high pick, and uh, he ends up coming to the Astros, and they don't know until after they draft him that he has this weird elbow issue. Um, fast forward a few weeks, they can't come to terms on a contract uh, within the, the signing period. Um, so Brady Aiken re-enters the draft the following year, is drafted by the Cleveland Indians, and eventually does end up hurting his elbow again. But the Astros had no idea that this was going to ha happen, that he had this issue until they drafted him. They didn't have the ability to review those medical reports. And by making this draft so close to players having to enroll uh, in college, it also gives the MLB clubs a shorter amount of, of time to negotiate and to actually come to terms with these players. Um, obviously, that particular scenario worked out well for the Astros. They end up getting a second first-round draft pick the, the next year and drafted a guy by the name of Alex Bregman. Um, so not a lot of love lost there, but this is one story in a line of many that could end up being more common if you shorten the amount of time between the draft and the time that a player has to, to commit to a, a college. Um, this also has ripple effects for high school. If you have a player that is coming out of high school and he says, hey, I'm going to enter into the MLB draft, two things become very clear. Many times high school players are, are drafted above college players, but not often. Uh, last year in the first, second, and third rounds, over 70% of the college players were called, 70% uh, of the drafted players were from college. You have guys that come out like a guy like Bryce Harper, um, who obviously is a stud and a no-brainer, but then you have high school pitchers and catchers and uh, you know infielders, outfielders all the time that you're banking on projection. And what ends up happening to many high school players that commit and say, "Hey, I'm going to go in the pros," um, is that it it ends up making it a less desirable outcome for high school players, and it ends up delaying players actually getting to the pros because many of them are going to ins instead, they're going to suggest going to college because they're going to be stuck in these lower tier leagues, this dream league where you may or may not make it. These clubs have lower facilities, lower funding. Um, and if you weren't in the top 25 players drafted, you really, really, really have to fight uh, beyond what anyone does even now that's drafting later rounds, but now you would really, really have to fight to make it into, um, you know, with a, a minor, a major league club that has a minor league affiliate. So it ends up having a ripple effect farther and farther and farther down the chain to where it, it eventually could even have an effect on high school players, where you could see more and more high school players deciding to instead play college ball. And what that does is then you have guys that are more open to instead playing two years or instead playing four years um, at the college level. And now we're seeing players come into uh, you know your system as 22, 23, 24-year-old kids compared to guys uh, being you know younger, these younger, younger prospects, and they spend less time in the minors. Now, this can be good or bad. 
you know, less time in your system, less time playing pro ball means that the level of competition is going to be lower and they may not progress as quickly. The other side of it is if you put someone too young in too high of competition, they may flame out. They may never figure it out. They may battle injuries, things of this nature. So um, it, it adds a dynamic that is could fundamentally change the way that that baseball teams draft. It could fundamentally change the way that players decide to commit or decide to um, enter into uh, the major leagues. Um, and it's going to ultimately make the game older. It would it could make the game more polished, but you also lose uh, a lot of that younger flair. You lose a lot of that um, those 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 youth. Uh, type of players that so many fans can fall in love with. And, you know, there's, if they're still drafted, if they're still drafted in some of the higher rounds, um, obviously they could still move up, but it makes it a little bit more difficult when you lower the sample size. Um, another aspect to this is that obviously this is all a proposal, but as a fan, you, as a listener, as someone that, you know, possibly supports minor league baseball. Why should this matter to you? It should matter to you because it's possible that 42 clubs, 42 economic systems in America lose the chance to see professional brand of baseball. I've never talked about minor league baseball and in this extent before on this podcast, but something I want to mention is just how much I love minor league baseball. The interesting thing about minor leagues is it's its own animal. Minor league managers, minor league owners are not in it necessarily to win. If you win, it's awesome. But much of the winning is done and determined by the major league club, who they bring up, who they bring down, who they have on the 40 man, who they don't. And you can't control as much of that as you would um, in other situations. So what managers and owners have found is that their real struggle with trying to get fans out to ball games is instead they have made minor league games fun. They have made them entertaining. They have made them uh, a place that you could take your family and enjoy an evening, and it's fairly inexpensive. My wife and I go to the Frisco Rough Riders games all the time, and uh, on average, we pay about seven to eight dollars per ticket. Um, and then with food and uh, con- other concessions um, and parking, we never pay more than around thirty dollars. And it we always have a great time. And you see multiple minor league clubs do awesome things like Superhero Night, or they change their name. I know the the Chihuahuas um, last season for a night changed their name to the Tacos and had special uniforms. And these are the kind of things that um, kids love. They have bobblehead giveaway nights, and um, they they always have you know fun games they play on the field. And the action is right there. We always sit really close, right up third base line. And the the fun thing also about minor leagues. Um, and especially minor league clubs like, uh, you know, high A, double A, triple A, you never know who you're watching. You never know, uh, who is going to be out there. I know a, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I were able to attend a game that you Darvish was doing a rehab assignment and I got to watch you Darvish pitch. Now, obviously it's a minor league competition and, um, you know, the, the level of, 
um, you know, uh, competition there was a little bit lower. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that you never know what you're going to see. You never know who's coming up through your system. You never know, uh, you know, who's going to be the next great player. Um, and if you take away major league affiliation with 42 clubs, it makes it less desirable. It makes the the um, exposure to the game that much less, and it it gives kids, young young fans, less of a reason to follow, pursue, play, enjoy baseball. Um, in the last few years, baseball has taken a hit. You know from a marketing perspective, people, especially people, young people, you know, uh, baseball is slow and I don't understand how you could sit there and watch nine innings. And I don't understand, um, you know, uh, why you would sit there and watch, um, you know, a game that is in some cases, two and a half, three hours long, that is low on action. And, um, and, and there are many different reasons why I love the game of baseball in general, the nuances of it. And obviously home runs are fun and, and steals and um, double plays and triple plays um, and getting to watch players that uh, reshape and will forever have an impact on the game. But this all came, my love of baseball all came from being uh, in and around an area that I had easy access to a minor league team. Um, I had easy access, uh, to, um, being around the game. And I had a family who had grown up following baseball and then grown up, um, with baseball being a staple in our home. And, um, and I, I, we lived down near the Austin area for a while, and we were able to follow uh, the minor league club at that point. And we always had fun going out to minor league games. It was a family tradition. And I would go down to Houston um, almost every summer, and we would go to uh, Hoax games in Corpus Christi. That's a little bit of a drive to minor league club. And obviously, we'd go to Astros games, but the hooks were always fun. And it was always exciting, and it was always a different atmosphere. And you were right there. And that those were the kind of times that I truly fell in love with the game. And as major league tickets tend to be a little bit more, these minor league teams offer uh, the ability for someone geographically to be in a position where they can have exposure to the game, but also from a, from a financial perspective, it gives them the ability to have that greater exposure. And I encourage you guys as fans, I encourage anyone listening to this podcast, if you live in or around a minor league club, support your team, go to a game this year, go to two games this year, buy a season package. They're not expensive. Um, go root on, those kids, many of which, like I said, are making six and $7,000 for the whole season. They're traveling in buses that in many cases don't have sleeping arrangements. And I, I do agree. I think minor league clubs um, are at a financial disadvantage. And I do agree. I think major leagues, uh, the major league clubs should do something about it. But I don't think the answer is to cut and eliminate baseball from all these different areas and make it that much tougher. Um, I would love to see a, a position where 
the, the major league clubs are more financially responsible for the minor league affiliates. Make the contracts longer. Make them 10. Make them 15 years. And then major league clubs would be more willing to invest in their minor league uh, uh, counterparts. I would love to see, obviously, updated facilities. Um, but in areas where that's not available, I would love to see some of these teams merge together. I would love to see, um, you know, I, I'm from the Amarillo area um, recently, and we recently have the Amarillo Sod Poodles. It's one of the nicest um, major uh, minor league stadiums that are available right now, but it's brand new. And I would love to see um, America really stand behind the pastime that has been part of our DNA for, for generations. Um, something that you know, almost every 4th of July, my wife and I go out to a Rangers game um, or an Astros game over in Houston and we enjoy the fireworks and, and we enjoy just the love and the the experience of being in and around baseball. And I don't want that to be something that's lost on our next generation. I don't want that something that's lost um, from kids just because they no longer have exposure to it and they're not able to experience these things. I implore you as fans, fight for minor league baseball. Fight for these players. Fight for dreams uh, for players that have a future and want to have a future in the sport. I know that obviously there's a lot of moving parts to this and we don't know the direction this is going to go moving forward. But what I do know is this by moving the draft down, by moving the date, by cutting these teams, by eliminating funding, by telling these clubs that they have to improve facilities, uh, which was done once before in the the 1990s, and the clubs responded. um, But by strong-arming them the way that, that Major League Baseball is doing it puts minor league and major league baseball at arms with each other. And I encourage both clubs to come together, find a solution that works for these minor league players and find a solution that works for fans all across America. Don't cut baseball. I obviously am very passionate about this, but I would love to hear y'all's thoughts. I would love to hear your thoughts if you're in and around a minor league area uh, that you enjoy regularly. I'd love to hear from um, fans around Midland, fans around El Paso, fans around uh, Round Rock, uh, obviously uh, fans around Amarillo, um, Corpus Christi, um, Nashville, Sound, and all the minor league clubs all across America. If you're listening to this, I would love to hear your experiences. I would love to hear what makes baseball special to you. I would love to hear um, the stories that you've had maybe growing up or exposure to baseball that made you a fan and uh, ultimately listen to podcasts just like this one. Um, I implore you guys to support your local clubs and continue to do so. Um, With that, we can ensure baseball in its pure form is guaranteed for the next generation. Thank y'all so much for listening to the Texas Triple Play Podcast. 
I am again your host, Ben Staten. Please do follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TX Triple Play and Facebook at the Texas Triple Play Facebook group. I would love to connect with you, talk baseball, talk Rangers, talk Astros. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that minor league proposal. Um, like I said, what what made you a fan of baseball? What experience uh, kind of shaped uh, you being um, in the position that you're in to to follow these the clubs so closely? Uh, I'm excited to see what uh, comes of this in the next few months as the major league and minor league um, uh, a proposal kind of comes into shape. We do have a lot of things set that are going to come down the pipe for the Texas Triple Play podcast Some things in the works that I can't touch on just yet, but we are excited about. Um, So be on the lookout for that. Obviously, follow all of our social media platforms, uh, but continue to keep uh, up to date with us as we do get more confirmation as the, the Astros hire new managers. Uh, both general and uh, and their their uh, bench manager, um, and uh, keep keep in track with us as the Rangers and the Astros both move uh, into spring training. We'll have full breakdowns of everything here. I'm excited uh, for the uh, the next phase of both of these clubs. Excited to see where this goes. Um, and uh, again, love to connect with you. Uh, until next week, this is Ben Staten with the Texas Triple Play Podcast. <laughs>